0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you would like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at redeemergso.org. Well, I didn't plan to do this, but I just noticed that Alan left his Harry Potter Halloween wand up here from last week. <laughs> There's a bunch of costumes hanging in his office right now, if you want to go check those out. (laughs) Or you can come this weekend and watch him dress up. I'm just joking. I love you. So what does Acts 19, the story of a riot in Ephesus, have to do with us today, the church? On the surface, it doesn't seem like there's much to take away from this passage. It's just filled with historical facts about events that are occurring in the city of Ephesus a long, long time ago. I mean, Paul is proclaiming a message. People's lives are transformed, and in turn, these transformed lives with their new ways of living affect the wider society in an economic way. So then some business leaders who are losing profits get together they organize a massive riot by spreading fear on social media of an impending recession that could lead to a total economic and religious collapse disruption in markets high rates of in- unemployment hyperinflation prolonged depression the end of religion social chaos civil unrest an end to life as they knew it sound familiar after a couple hours of shouting at the top of their lungs, like Alan at an Oklahoma State football game, that their city and goddess is great, a local town economist shows up and he talks some sense into everyone and tells everybody, it's time to get back to work. End of story. So what does all this have to do with us? Like really, what, what does all this have to do with the church today? I think it has everything to do with us. In short, Paul is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God is pulling back the curtain to expose what's actually underneath our lives and our ways of living. And it's actually really, really painful for the Ephesians in Ephesus It leads to the salvation of many and new ways of living. So here's the question. What if this message and the way of life it entails still wants to do this work in us today? Really, what if the message of the gospel and the way of life that it entails wants to do this in our lives? I wonder if we could today allow God to do the same thing in us. If we could allow God to pull back the curtain on our lives and expose the daily practices that make up our lives, to let the light of the gospel shine in on them. Personally, I've never met anyone who loves to have a light shine brightly in their face, especially if they're sleeping. Right, honey? It's very unsettling but it does wake you up. And this is my hope for us today. As we consider what God is up to in our lives and how Acts 19 is relevant for our lives, for the church today, my hope is that we will allow God to pull back the curtain, to expose what's actually underneath. And although it may be difficult and even painful My hope is that we will also allow the light of the gospel to unsettle us, to unsettle our lives and everything about our lives, so that God's grace might begin to conform us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Father, do this work in us. In Acts 19, we find Paul in the marketplace which was the economic hub of Ephesus. And he's proclaiming the good news concerning Jesus Christ as the Messiah, Jesus Christ as Lord, Jesus Christ, Savior of the world. And throughout our current sermon series, we've been reminded time and time again that where the gospel is proclaimed, the kingdom of God is changing lives, especially the way people and cities and whole nations operate. And as Alan showed us last week, the kingdom of God has already begun to dramatically change how the city of Ephesus operates. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to read Acts 19, verses 1 through 20. But not everyone is happy with Paul's message and activity of converting these people to the way of Jesus. In this passage, Luke tells us the message... Or that the message and the way of life of the followers of the way of Jesus leads to a riot. And right off the bat, we discover that what Buddy reminded us a few weeks ago in his sermon is true. That is how the proclamation of the gospel and the way of life that it involves or entails is once again disruptive. Personally, throughout the series, I've been reminded of a famous work written by the late Archbishop Oscar Romero. Does anybody know who this guy is? He was a Roman Catholic pastor who spent his life ministering to the poor in El Salvador during a time of great civil unrest. Romero was a vocal critic of the violent activities of government armed forces, uh, right-wing groups, and leftist guerrillas involved in El Salvador's Civil War, which actually lasted from 1979 all the way up to 1992. And throughout his works, particularly in his sermons, Romero repeatedly called for an end to the violence. And he was calling Christians, both rich and poor, and right and left, and in between, to uphold the gospel. In many ways, as the world would soon discover, his ministry and preaching was Nothing more or less than his own signing away of his own death certificate. On March 24th, 1980, in El Salvador, Archbishop Oscar Romero was gunned down and murdered while celebrating Holy Communion. He understood just how disruptive and transformative the message of the gospel and its effects on our lives and the wider society really is. Before he died, he once said, a church that doesn't provoke any crisis, a gospel that doesn't unsettle, a word of God that doesn't get under anyone's skin— a word of God that doesn't touch the real sin of society in which it is being proclaimed. What gospel is that? Very nice, pious considerations that don't bother anyone. That is the way many would like the preaching to be. Those churches that avoid every thorny matter so as not to be harassed, so as not to have conflicts and difficulties, do not. Light up the world they live in. In Acts 19, the way of life that marks the church is disruptive. In verse 23, we begin. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. That means he had a pretty good business. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that God's made with the hands of humans are not God's. And there is danger not only that our trade may come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis. Artemis. May be counted as nothing, and that she may be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So here we meet a silversmith named Demetrius, whose occupation is making little silver idols of the goddess of Artemis. Now, Artemis is a big deal. Artemis was the Greek goddess of fertility, she was the patron deity of the city of Ephesus. And as a sign of their devotion to this goddess, the Ephesians engraved depictions of her on their coins, and they built what was considered the largest temple in the world at that time. It was one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world. The temple also functioned as a bank, as well as a place to offer and eat sacrifices. In so many ways, the city of Ephesus and Artemis are linked And there was big business to be made from the worship of this goddess. And so the competing claims of Christianity started to cut into the profits of the business of idol-making. And it's not just the business of idol-making that is called into question, but everything that this socially accepted business represents The business, yes, it's in question. It's part of a whole larger economy whose power and security are linked to the worship of their God. Demetrius makes this clear in verse 27. And there is danger not only in this trade of ours, that it might come into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis, that she may be counted as nothing and that she may be even deposed of her magnificence, of whom all of Asia and the world worship. I wonder, I wonder how many of us are a lot like Demetrius when it comes to how we respond to the disruptions of our lives and all the things we believe are essential for our lives. It's without doubt that when our lives are interrupted, with minor or major inconveniences, and all that we believe to be vital for our lives is disruptive. For better or worse, we are prone to panic, are we not? We are prone to panic and fear and act in ways in an effort to gain back some degree of control over our lives. So maybe, just maybe, we can learn something today that is really significant from an idol maker, Demetrius. You see, in his reaction to the effects of the gospel on his business, his life, and society, I believe that Demetrius offers us a lesson about the far-reaching claim the gospel has on our lives and all the daily practices that make up our lives, social, Religious, political, and, yes, economic. In a roundabout way, Demetrius teaches the church something about Christ and culture. So, so just let me explain. First, when I use the term culture, what I mean is a way of life. The word culture simply means everything that people say and do, have and make and think that is either learned and or shared by members of a particular society. So in his reaction to the effects of the gospel on his life, his business, and his society, Demetrius helps us understand how one part of culture, idol-making, relates to the whole between the city of Ephesus and Artemis. Demetrius actually helps us understand how every part of life signifies something. It it is a sign of something about the values and the beliefs that shape our lives, that shape our culture. I mean, just think about some of the most recent controversy about kneeling during national anthems, the removal of Confederate statues, mask mandates, and the current global supply chain. Oh, my. I can't mention these, right? Just breathe. All right? The stretch. Calm down. Alan, calm down. <laughs> I have no desire to tackle these issues in my sermon. Well, I actually do, <laughs> but not today. Or will I? <laughs> <laughs> Here's the deal. The reason I highlight these things is because they represent something about the values and beliefs that have come to shape our lives and our culture. Particularly freedom and autonomy. And I know this to be true. I know this to be true because I have witnessed how they have given rise to all sorts of emotions and feelings and beliefs about our collective life. And I lament the fact that I have also witnessed how they have led to riotous behavior and caused great division within our nation, our families, and even among you sitting here today. In our own lives and in the lives of others, we have witnessed how absolutely and wholly devoted we have been to nation, a particular group or race, and a vision of health. How devoted we are to our comfort and security through these things that we've been arguing about for years, over and against our devotion to Jesus Christ. This is idolatry at work in this church. This is idol making whether it's an affinity for a particular place or people or feeling of honor for one's homeland or sense of achievement or finding joy in one's station in life, all of which are good things. When we make these good things in our lives God-like through our devotion, we are committing idolatry. And like Demetrius, who was a good idol-maker, we do everything in our power to preserve and sustain these idols based on the false promise that they will preserve and sustain our lives. According to Scripture in Psalm 135 that we sung this morning, the idols that are so near and dear to us are nothing more than our own making. And when we offer them our devotion, we are doing nothing less Instilling worship that God alone deserves. This path leads to death. Worship does something to us, people. In the case of idolatry, we become like what we worship. And if we give into the delusional belief that we can manufacture divinity and control our fate, then we are deceived. In the end, such idol-making and idolatry is the way of death. Cursed is the person who makes an idol, an abomination to the Lord, Deuteronomy 27, verse 15. What we learn from Demetrius' brief sermon to his guild is that there was a vision of the meaning of life in Ephesus that had so much to do with the belief that Artemis was worthy of worship, for she was great among the Ephesians. They believed that Artemis was the giver and the sustainer of life and a particular way of life on which all their wealth and power and security rested. This is why the message of the gospel was a threat, not only to the object of veneration— in idol, but also to the whole economy of production and consumption of idols in Ephesus. The gospel exposed not only the idol and the idol maker, but also the futility of the logic and the entire economy of idolatry itself. So this is the question that comes to the fore for us. What cultural practices and patterns are we engaged in What are the objects of desire that we have attached our affections and energies to that may need to be brought into the light of the gospel and the truth of God? To be honest, I struggled a lot over the past four weeks with whether or not I should provide a list of practices for us to reflect on today. For better or worse, I've chosen not to because I really don't want us to get bogged down into the nitty gritty and how the nuances and the ambiguities of our lives may or may not differ. But the real reason I've chosen not to is because I want us to pray, both as a community, as well as individuals within our families, within our life groups, among our friends. I want us to pray. I want us to pray and ask God to reveal this to us. And so, rarely do I ask you to do anything in a sermon. But today I'm asking you to do one thing, to join me this week in praying and asking the Lord these questions. If you want to write them down, I'll say them very slowly. What cultural practices and patterns are we am I engaged in? What cultural practices and patterns are we, am I engaged in that may need to be brought into the light of Christ in the truth of the gospel? And I want you to think religiously, socially, economically, politically, publicly, What cultural practices and patterns are we engaged in? Am I engaged in that we may need to be brought into the light of Christ and the truth of the gospel? The second question is what are the objects of desire that we have attached our affections and energies to? What are the objects of desire that we have attached our affections and energies to that may also need to be brought into the light of Christ and the truth of the gospel. What Demetrius was experiencing was the economic and the societal effects of the gospel on his profits, his pocketbook, his livelihood, and at the end of the day, his entire worldview. The message of the gospel and the kingdom of God offered new ways of living that challenged everything he held near and dear. And because it did, I honestly believe that Demetrius understood the far-reaching challenge of the gospel on his life and the lives of those in Ephesus. He teaches us about the far-reaching challenge of the gospel on our own lives. And that's the question, do we understand the far-reaching challenge of the gospel on our lives? And do we desire to strive toward that end and will we? Once again, he understood the far-reaching challenge of the gospel that if Christ is Lord, then Artemis is not. If freedom is in Christ, then what does that mean for us in the West who have a particular way of understanding freedom? Paul says in Romans that you are either a slave to sin, disobedience, deception in the devil, or you are a servant of Christ. If Artemis is not Lord, then the very fabric of Ephesian culture, religious, economic, and civil well-being and livelihood, power and security, cannot be delivered by human hands what if the message of the gospel and the way of life that it entails still wants to do this work in us if christ is lord then what does that mean for our lives for how we posture ourselves to one another for how we posture ourselves and relate to the very fabric of american culture religious economic and civil well-being power and freedom and security, the message of the gospel remains the same. The question is, does its effects on our lives? If Paul's proclamation is true, then here's the deal. The deficit in the silversmith's work was not necessarily in the work of their hands, making of little silver gods. But here's the paradox. The deficit deficit is the idolatrous work at work in them. It's the delusional belief that they could actually manufacture divinity. That they could attempt to control their fate. So at the end of the day, what we discover in this brief story is that what the gospel disrupts and threatens is that spirit of pride and self-interest that shaped their work to serve the gods of religion and nationalism and security and comfort. What we discover is that the gospel exposes the heart of pride and self-interest, the heart which is an idol factory in which we fashion and refashion God to fit our needs and our desires. You see, the Human condition is enslaved by idolatry, but the good news is that Christ Jesus is Lord. That Jesus saves us from sin, that Jesus saves us from death, and that Jesus saves us from our own undoing. Sisters and brothers, our faith, if consistently practiced, will provoke confrontation and cost us. And this should not surprise us or alarm us. As Oscar Romero reminds us, the church must suffer. It must suffer for speaking the truth, for pointing out sin and for uprooting sin. No one wants to have a sore spot touched, do they? And therefore a society with so many sores twitches when someone has the courage to touch it and say, you have to treat that, you have to get rid of that believe in Christ, and be transformed. Christian faithfulness comes at a cost. It comes at a loss, and even the destruction of what we hold dear and near, and what we think is essential for sustaining our lives. And so here's the deal. We either choose Christ or we don't. We either choose Christ and yield to Christ's claim on our lives and all that our lives until, or we keep striving to gain control over our lives to no end. So hear me clearly. Choose Christ. Believe what is promised in the gospel and let's live in the radically new kind of life that Jesus came to bring. May we strive to be faithful like the church in Ephesus as they lived in light of the gospel and according to the kingdom of God. And in our efforts on doing God's will, let us hold one another accountable to this. But whatever we do, let's make sure that we don't leave this place today in the same way the rioters left the theater in Ephesus, where we just go back to work and forget or neglect what God is up to in our lives. I say this because if we are actually to live in the light of the gospel then we must never forget that before the message of the gospel can provoke this unsettling in society at large, it must do so among followers of Jesus Christ. It must start with us. The church is to be a place where the truth sets free and where the Holy Spirit makes new. We can opt to dispense all kinds of medication that kill the pain and assuage people's consciences, or we can submit ourselves to the great physician's knife in the light of the gospel, which ought to change our lives and the ways we live. Amen. Sisters and brothers, choose Christ and allow him to lay claim to your life in everything that makes up your life. Only then will we light up the world in which we live. Amen.